0: If it's laughing you need Then it's laughing indeed Cause it's laughing at me Yes, it's laughing at me
1: Hey everybody, welcome back to Reggie's Comic Stories, episode number 14 Uh, You can find me here every other Wednesday on chrisandreggie.com Or pick it up from iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify I think that covered all of them And of course I switch off every other week with Chris Who does Chris's on Infinite Earths on alternate Wednesdays So next week you can listen to his show But this week it's my show And I wanted to talk about uh, one of my very favorite comic series in the history of comics. And it's called Not Brand Ech by uh, Marvel Comics, published in the uh, very late 60s and very early 19s. I think it went from 69 to 71, something like that. Maybe we'll find out as we uh, get into the episode. But this is one of my favorite series ever published. Uh, As a lot of you know, I love a goofy, funny comic. And this was uh, maybe ma- uh, Marvel's first attempt at uh, trying to get some of that Mad Magazine-type money, that uh, spoof parody money uh, that they were doing very well with, especially as we went into the 60s. Uh, but th- what's interesting about this book, Not Brand Eck, and uh, it'll explain wh- what the title is about as soon as I get into my reading, uh, is that uh, it primarily made fun of Marvel... Properties, it was a Marvel comic And they were having fun with their own uh, characters And and, uh, scenarios And that's something that I think is really uh, missing from comics today Mainstream comics at least And frankly, uh, independent comics as well There used to be much more of a sense of humor About what they were doing in general Um, You know, at the end of the day These are stories about, you know, people that wear capes and fly through the air. This is not uh, you know, there can be a lot of drama and pathos, but there's gotta be a good amount of fantasy and a little bit of tongue-in-cheek understanding that these scenarios are a little bit silly. And that that really has gone away. There's been such a uh forced realism in comics and uh not so much clowning on them. One of the things I commonly see are people complaining about certain uh, you know, costumes not working. Be like that would never that would that would slip off that domino mask would never stay on, and it's like well, that's why you know when it's drawn, we'll just make sure that it's not it doesn't happen that way you know this is there's so much dividing what happens in a comic between what happens in real life before the domino mask that's not even worth talking about that you know things like a costume uh you know and in the eighties, even there was you know Fred Hembeck used to do a lot of spoofs on Marvel. Uh, they just just used to have much more of a sense of humor about what they were doing. Uh, I think m- not too long ago, Marvel put out a comic with Irving Forbush on the cover. That's their mascot with the uh, backwards saucepan for a helmet, uh, and it was what the or whatever. And it was supposed to be kind of a callback to not bring Eck, but it had lost all of its charm. I felt you know it, there was a certain meanness to everything, and uh, I don't I don't know what that's about, you know, I, I, are people still having a good time? Are you having a good time making these comics, folks? Let me know uh, if you work in the comics industry, if it's become kind of a dour, boring business that you don't even want to deal with, and uh, there's no room for merrymaking anymore. But anyway, Not Bring, Eck was a great book, and uh, there is a collection out there that I ran out and got as soon as it was made available. Uh, but you know you can actually find these issues for not a ton of money. I think, as long as they're not in mint condition. Uh, but we're going to jump into a the beginning of an article written by Roy Thomas, who was there at the time and worked on this comic uh, at Marvel Comics. Uh, this is from Alter Ego number ninety-five, uh, July twenty ten cover date. Uh, as always, you know if you're not getting Alter Ego, if you're not checking out Tomorrow's publishings. Uh, offerings, then you are missing a lot of awesome comics history. Chris and I use these, these resources all the time. Uh, I've used it many times on this very show, reading from uh, Alter Ego and their other publications. And I'm going to do it again today. I'm going to read the introduction to uh, Roy Thomas's article about Not Brand Eck. So the article is titled "Ech Marks the Spot," and by the way, that is uh, spelled E C H H, and which will become uh, an important spelling in a moment. It's this is a goofy, gregarious guide to Marvel's Not Brand Ech, 1967 to 69, by Roy Thomas, who was there, and uh, he starts the article with a. Uh, it's titled Brand Ech A Morning. Guess you might call it a power lunch, 1967 style, at least within the narrow confines of Marvel Comics as it then was. It may have well been the only time that the editor-chief writer Stan Lee, a new editorial assistant Gary Friedrich, and I ever went out to eat as a threesome. In fact, that might have been the same day that, out of the cerulean blue, Stan abruptly announced to us, You know, we need some titles around here. I'm the editor, so I guess that makes Roy the associate editor, and Gary the assistant editor. And lo, it suddenly was so. For the past year plus, ever since I'd quickly ceased being a salaried staff writer in favor of performing proofreading and other menial editorial chores, I hadn't had any title, not even editorial assistant. Marvel in the latter 60s, only slowly beginning to expand again after the sculpt and crew of the late 50s and early 60s, Didn't bother much with formal job descriptions, since there were maybe a dozen people on staff. By the turn of 1967, those included, besides Stan, Gary, and me, the following intrepid souls. Production manager Saul Brodsky, production staffer Marie Severin, who'd recently begun doubling as artist of the 10-page Doctor Strange and Incredible Hulk features, staff artist John Ramita, drawing the amazing Spider-Man and already being utilized as a sort of informal assistant art director, corresponding secretary, what they then called a gal Friday, Flo Steinberg, Mori Kuramoto, staff letterer, and new production man John Verputin, if he was there by then, Roy isn't positive, Daredevil co-creator Bill Everett as staff artist, and maybe one or two others. Gary had recently replaced short-time editorial assistant Ron White, a talented young playwright who hadn't quite jellied on staff. In late 65, I persuaded Gary, who, back in our hometown of, of course, Jackson, Missouri, had been my best friend, a fellow movie usher and rock bandmate, to move to New York. There, he was soon banging out scripts for Charlton editor Dick Giordano till I could wrangle him a shot at taking the Marvel writer's test and landing a job on Stan's little staff, which he duly did by the latter part of 66. Anyway, back to that lunch. Stan was looking for new concepts he could convince publisher Martin Goodman to put out. Besides superheroes, Marvel still produced a handful of westerns, mostly written by Stan's brother Larry Lieber, plus the new Ghost Rider by Gary and artist Dick Ayers, the two wilting Millie the Model titles, and the quasi-superheroic war comic Sergeant Fury. That day, over a meal probably at Schraff's restaurant, whose specialty was their ice cream, Gary and I tossed out to Stan the notion of doing a comic along the lines of their early mad. I'd always believed it was Gary who brought it up, but this past February, when I asked him for any anecdotal memories he had about NBE, Gary emailed, I recall it having a, its genesis in several conversations you and I had about doing a book, along the lines of the original MAD comic book, not the late, later black and white one. I remember you coming up with the idea to call it brand-eck, which I thought was great in that we'd be doing a lot of takeoffs on DC characters. I myself have no recollection of the comic's title being my idea, although I'd be delighted to take credit for it, even if the phrase itself was totally stands as detailed on the next page. Since its early days I'd been a rabid fan of Harvey Kurtzman's brilliant four color Mad number one through twenty three, published from nineteen fifty two to fifty five, before it metamorphosed into a black and white quote magazine unquote. And having also purchased timely Marvel Atlas' own parody comics Crazy, Wild, and Riot in the mid-50s, I knew they'd had a few good moments of all their own, as detailed in Alter Ego number eighty six hint hint. Gary adds uh, of his own days as a kid back in small-town Missouri. My friend Paul Russell and I would get a new Mad and go over it word for word in the swing on his front porch. My early favorites were Melvin Mole and the Shane takeoff. Same. I also like the Blackhawk story. That makes Gary, who's three, four years younger than I am, a Mad reader at least as early as I was. I'd been a whole twelve when Mad fought number five and number four in that order had suddenly hit me like a broadside when I'd suddenly got it. Whichever of the two of us first brought up the idea of Marvel doing a parody comic, Stan loved it, but instantly decided that, rather than poking fun at rival company's heroes or putting out a general satire spoof title, it should be specifically devoted to burlesquing Marvel's own characters. At first blush I didn't like that concept nearly as much as our original one, but in retrospect I realized it was a far better choice commercially. Our readers were far likelier to buy a comic featuring ribald renditions of our Marvel heroes than one that showcased latter-day equivalents of Kurtzman and Wood's Super Duper Man and Bat Boy and Reuben. In fact, since Marvel wouldn't have been able to publish ongoing adventures of parody versions of other companies' heroes without quickly encountering problems with their attorneys, under Gary's and my plan we'd soon have run out of characters we could lampoon. And by the way, we did on Cosmic Treadmill read Mad Magazine number 4 featuring Super Duper Man. Uh, you can find the episode in our archives. Back to the article. Roy continues, For his part, Gary says, I remember going into the meeting all pumped up about the possibility of doing a book like my old favorite Mad comic and leaving it feeling quite like we'd made a really big mistake suggesting it in the first place. If I was initially disappointed at the direction Stan decided to take the proposed new title, and I was, Gary liked it even less. Stan had no immediate intention of our lampooning other companies' heroes, and indeed, there'd be precious little of that in the first issue. Gary believes the idea of calling the mag not brand-ech, rather than brand-ech, was brought up by Stan at that lunch, while, based on my own vague memories and a perusal of the comic's various indicia, I suspect the not part came about a few weeks later, when Stan had to work up a cover logo and a top line for the new title. More on that in a minute. But why Brand X? With or without the not? Well, since at least 1960, TV and print ads had been rife with references to Brand X, the always unnamed competitor to whatever sponsor was buying the ad. Brand X's true moniker, wink-wink, nod-nod, couldn't be revealed for legal reasons. But its merchandise, whether laundry detergent or mouthwash or whatever, was of course invariably and demonstrably inferior to the name brand. According to an article in the October 31, 1960 issue of Time magazine, by then the phrase had even inspired a few enterprising companies to turn out actual brand X cigarettes, cleaners, popcorn, and whiskey, with more such like on the way. No real-life brand X product of that era ever sold well, though, surprise, surprise, and ere long all had vanished into limbo. As unearthed by intrepid researchers Barry Pearl and Nick Caputo, it was a letter from two Forest Hills, New York fans printed in Fantastic Four number 7, October 1962 cover date, that had first used the disapproving term, ech. Yep, two H's on that one to refer, among other things, to Stan's ubiquitous wisecracks. Our leader himself introduced the phrase brand X into Marvel on the letters page of FF number 26. That's a May 1964 cover date, though he used it there to refer to Marvel itself rather than to rival companies. The use of that term for the competition first popped up on the letters page of Amazing Spider-Man number 31, December 1965 cover date, where Stan wrote one fictitious entity. He must be a brand X character, we don't remember using him. In the meantime, beginning in the letters section of FF number 43, October 1965 cover date, Stan had added his own spin and begun referring to Marvel's competitors as Brand Ech. In a boxed comment he wrote, CHEE! Have you noticed the sorry mess of Marvel imitations making the scene lately? Imitation may be the sincerest form of flattery and all that jazz but we want to make darn sure no dyed-in-the-wool Marvel madman gets stuck with one of those inferior brand ech versions of the real thing. So lull yourself to sleep each night with these imperishable words. It isn't a Marvel masterpiece unless it says Marvel on the cover trademark. Don't ever settle for less. You're far too important to us. Remember, we found you first. The Ech was probably an unconscious riff on Mad Magazine's frequent use of the term ech. Note the different spelling, two C's, not two H's, to kudote disdain or disgust. Later, when a letter writer referred in Amazing Spider-Man number 34 to brand ECH, Stan good-naturedly corrected his spelling. He did it with two C's in that one. Stan's earliest brand ECH digs were doubtless aimed at mostly a DC Comics belated attempt to emulate certain Marvel traits, like hit buzzwords, an informal editorial attitude, and yes, character development. But the origins of what would soon be the Archie Group's radio comics line, starting with Flyman, had gone on sale by spring of 65, as well. Still, when a fan letter from the future Doctor Strange artist Frank Brunner, printed in the X-Men number 20, May 1966 cover date, challenged him to name Marvel's competitor and stop beating around the bush, for Bush, for example, uh, Stan responded, as for why we don't name brand Ech, it's because we have more than one competitor. So brand Ech stands for all of them. You pays your money and you takes your choice. Besides, we did name em. Who do you think made up the appellation brand Ech? Yeah. Two months later, in the bullpen Bolton's page that appeared in all Marvel Comics dated July 1966, he responded to letter scribe Mike Morano's admonition to cease and desist with the name calling thusly, He wrote, actually, we've never tried to single out any competitor for criticism. By Bran Ech, we really meant all of them. But that's beside the point. What we want to know is, do most of you agree with Mike? If so, we won't mention Bran Ech again. Personally, we get a kick out of the mutual letter calls needling that goes on. But as always, our job is to please you. So clue us in, frantic ones, and we'll announce your decision as soon as the mail is in. For by now, along with a marvel series or three at National DC, for example, Doom Patrol, Metamorpho, and Eclipso, and the burgeoning cast of Archie's Flyman that would soon coalesce into the mighty Crusaders, this is a source of supreme annoyance to both Goodman and Stan because of its over-the-top attempts to appropriate the Marvel style. A new, if less imitative company called Tower had recently introduced the superhero comic Thunder agents under the artistic aegis of living legend and recent Daredevil artist Wally Wood. And still more companies, it seemed were entering the superhero sweepstakes every month, especially since the recent blockbuster success of Batman on TV, a phenomenon which during 1966-67 dwarfed even the powerful effect Marvel was having on the comics field. In the October 66 Bolton's page, after giving readers time to respond to his poll, Stan announced that the resultant mail had left him more confused than ever, he wrote. The mail is evenly divided. Fifty percent in favor of our roasting, our uh, competition every chance we get, and fifty percent opposed to our carrying the batty bickering on any longer. It looks as though there's nothing left to do but play it by ear. We'll mention them when we feel so justified, and ignore them when we think they deserve it, like most of the time. While I myself mostly read Marvel fan mail only when Stan or Flo routed letters to me, I suspect his estimate was a fairly accurate reflection of readers' response. After that, true to his word, he did use the term brand ECH less often in bullpen bulletins and letters pages. Then, in all August 67 issues after a teaser mini-ad the month before, Stan let off the bullpen's page with a self-proclaimed bombshell item which announced that Marvel's brand new mag, Brand Ech Number 1 was on sale. Why this title in humorous format, whose cover was depicted in a full-page house ad earlier in the same comics? Smiley explained. If everyone else is determined to imitate Marvel, we figure that your old bullpen can do a better, nuttier, funnier, and more exciting job at poking fun of itself than anyone else can do. But why call it Brand Ech? Because we've been steadily making those two words the most famous title in comicdom, so we figured might as well cash in on the publicity ourselves. Stan declared that the new title was jam-packed with Marvel's mightiest superheroes, with no indication that their names would be altered into parody versions, and would be loaded with block-busting belly laughs in every incredible panel. It's the mag you never expected to see, created by the only cavorting crew of creative cornballs who would have done it. And so on. That lead item, plus a small repro of the mag's logo near the bottom, took up roughly a quarter of that bullpen's Bolton's page. Stan was promoting Brand X's debut far more than he had, say, of the western Ghost Rider a few months earlier. I don't recall ever knowing if he'd had any difficulty talking Goodman into adding the new comic to the schedule, but unlike most new Marvel titles of that era, Brand X started life not as a bi-monthly, but as an eight times a year schedule. Which probably coincidentally was the frequency with which National DC, not Marvel, issued a number of its titles. But why is that MAG invariably referred to above as Brand Ech and not as not Brand Ech, the name by which it's almost universally been known for the past four plus decades? The reason, of course, is that the comic's official title for its first four issues was indeed simply Brand Ech, as a peak of the various indicia will verify. However, because the top line on all its covers read, Who says a comic book has to be good? Above the larger words, Not Brand Ech. Most fans from the outset treated that three-word phrase as if it were the actual title. Proof you want? In issue number four, all three comments from readers printed on the series' very first letters page would refer to it as Not Brand Ech. By then... Even the writer of that page's answers, probably Stan himself, refers to the comic by that title. Although he also instantly latched on to one letter scribe's reference to it is Brech. With, and with the NDC of number five, the title would indeed become officially Not Brand Ech. But now, what about the contents of that first issue, which set the style and of the others that followed? And uh, after this, Roy provides a really in depth. Look at several of all the issues, I think, I believe, of Not read. We're going to just go into the first one, but uh, if you want to read the rest of them, and believe me, if you've enjoyed the story till now, you will want to read the rest of this issue. I'm telling you, go to tomorrows.com, look in their back issues for Alter Ego. This is there. You can get it digitally uh, or you can get it print, which comes with a digital. And believe me, this isn't, I'm getting no compensation from this. This is just a Good tip for anyone that likes comics history. So, Brand Ech, number one, came out with an August 1967 cover Aiden and Roy writes, The stories, of course, were produced before the cover. For some reason, it was decided there'd be four of them in number one, and that I'd write two of them, a parody of Marvel's westerns, and I probably volunteered for this one, a takeoff on the Golden Age reprints then appearing in fantasy masterpieces. Stan would script the lead feature lampooning the Fantastic Four, and Gary would do a takeoff on the Sergeant Fury comic he'd recently begun scripting. We wound up in that first issue with a wonderful mix of artists, all of whom, as it happened, had been associated with color parody comics in the mid-50s. Jack Kirby, who with then-partner Joe Simon had produced Charlton's From Here to Insanity, number 11, August 1955, cover date. John Severin, who'd contributed Melvin of the Apes, etc., to very early Mad magazines, Bill Everett, who was a regular in timely Atlas's aforementioned trio of Mad imitations, the team of Ross Andrew and Mike Esposito, artists and even publishers of three issues of Get Lost, and Marie Severin, who'd colored each and every story in those first 23 issues of Mad. Ironic it would be Marie, the only one of the half-dozen named above who hadn't contributed actual art to a 1950s satire comic, who would become NBE's standout artist, the one who gave it, most of us feel, its soul, its best moments, and its prime justification for existence. Not that that was immediately clear in Brand Ech Number 1, which opened with, The fabulous Fantastic Four suffered through the saga of The Silver Burper. This was written by Stan Lee, penciled co-plotted by Jack Kirby and inked by Frank Giacola. Roy writes, what better way to begin than with a spoof of Fantastic Four by the two guys who created Marvel's flagship series? Whether from a short written plot or after a brief verbal discussion, Jack drew and then Stan dialogued a stunt up of FF number fifty seven, wherein Doctor Doom acquired the Silver Surfer's surfboard and went on a rampage. The story was well written and well drawn and pointed the way the comic book would develop though I must confess I personally winced at the names Dr. Bloom and Silver Burper. I felt the literative monikers would have been better, like The Simple Surfer, since that hero was so pure and good and even gullible in the tale being parodied, but I did like The Burpboard, and I loved Shrew Storm being referred to as The Inevitable Girl, for obvious reasons. Although rather than Human Scorch, I'd have preferred the no-holds-barred Fubin' Scorch, This was the name I'd used in Mad Style Story I'd written and drawn as a teenager. And by sheer coincidence, fan writer-artist Richard Grass Green had come up with the same name for his and Ron Foss's Da Frantic Four in a 1963 companion fanzine to the first volume of Alter Ego. Grass had also coined the name Sunk Mariner. But then, humor is, at rock bottom, a personal thing. And besides, it was Stan, not I, who'd already written tons of humor comics some of them quite successful. The tip of the hat to the early Mad by Stan used via use of the word first slugger on page two was a nice touch as well. The word would pop up more than once in Stan's Brand Ech stories and in mine. Brand Ech number one was off to a swingin' start. The next story is Two Gone Kid and the Fastest Gums in the West. Roy Thomas was the writer, Maurice Severin was the artist co-plotter. In the four pages of our Sagebrush saga, Marie and I spoofed all of Marvel's current Western stars. Two-Gun Kid, Rawhide Kid, and Kid Cult, except oddly the new Ghost Rider. By that point, she and I had done several Doctor Strange stories together and had a nice rapport. Probably after a brief discussion in the office, Marie began drawing. In the process, she also contributed quite a bit to the plot. Both of us were even greater believers than Stan in what some call chicken fat, i.e. the filling of panels with humorous signs, labels, slogans, etc. Our tale was stuffed to the gills with chicken fat beyond any other in number one. Some of these were worked into the pencils by Marie, often with wording by herself. In other instances, I might add a sign wherever I found horrors, empty space in a panel. For example, looking over the story now, I have no idea which of us came up with the running gag of repeated signs referring to the final scene in the 1953 George stevens Alan Ladd film, Shane. But Sane had been one of Mad's very first movie spoofs, and the flick's most eminently parodiable bit, which had also been a staple on radio comedy shows, was the, was the kid Brandon Wilde's plaintive cries of COME BACK SHANE! as he pursued his departing hero at the movie's end. Our series of signs on that theme climaxed with one that read Forget the whole thing, Shane, we just rented your room. Still, it shows our early mad roots that our big running gag referenced a movie nearly a decade and a half old, rather than a current western. Anyway, we closed the story by sticking an approved by the Comics Code Authority sticker on the sidekick Bum Bum's hat. We feared the code might make us remove it, but since we hadn't made any disparaging references to the code itself in the story, we hoped they'd be good sports about it, and damned if they weren't. There was a fiery aftermath to this story, but uh, Roy will get to that later in the article. Human Scorch vs. the Sunk Mariner was the next story, written by Roy Thomas and penciled by Ross Andrew and Bill Everett. Uh, they also co-plotted Mike Esposito, who almost always worked with Ross Andrew, inked this one. And Roy says, this is a hard one to write about. You'll see why. A year or so earlier, Stan had decided to reprint vintage stories of Timely's 1940s superheroes in our reprint title fantasy masterpieces. Since Marvel didn't have black and white proofs going back that far, copies of the actual old comics were found and photostatted, with the color washed out to the extent possible, and then the art was retouched, not always with proper care given our hectic pace. FM number seven, April 1967, cover date had reprinted the 22-page "The Human Torch vs. the Submariner Slugfest" from Marvel Mystery Comics number nine, July 1940, cover date. That issue was hitting the newsstands around the time we were prepping Brand Ech number one, so it was the perfect story to lampoon. Standard had assigned staffer Bill Everett as artist. That made perfect sense since Bill, Garys, and my sometime roommate over the past two years had created Namor and had drawn the Submariner figures in the 1940 story. Torch creator Carl Burgos had drawn his flaming foe. I wrote up a page or two of plot notes for Bill which basically exhorted him to just draw a humorous six-page version of the original story. I don't know how specific I was about the gags, but I suspect I included the tale's climax in which Chaplain America leaps in from his 1967 adventures, informs the battling duo that they're passé, and sends them off to an old folks' home. If that ending sounds a little familiar to someone who read Captain Marble Flies Again from Nuts No. 5, November 1954 cover date when we reprinted it back in Alter Ego number no. 33, well, that old spoof in which Golden Age heroes wound up confined in padded cells was definitely on my mind when I wrote these notes for Bill. However, since Stan had been fairly non-directional about the precise way we should handle the stories, one sentence as my synopsis read, I'm not quite sure of what Stan wants, so let's treat this story as if we're doing it for Harvey Kurtzman for one of the early color issues of MAD. I was mostly trying to inspire both Bill and myself. Bill, however, wasn't in a mood to be inspired that year. This was during a period when he was doing a lot of drinking, as he himself was the first to admit later, and frankly I've always felt he was just looking for an excuse not to do this assignment. He roughly penciled the splash page, after which instead of asking me for more details or a story conference, he charged with it into Stan's office and, to punctuate whatever precise complaint he made, shoved my type notes under Stan's nose. Stan read them and saw red. He quickly relieved Bill of the assignment and called me in, and proceeded to rake me over the coals. Not about the plot, but about my statement that I'd write as if I was doing it for Kurtzman's mad. Did Harvey Kurtzman get you a raise was one of the questions he fired at me. I didn't know how to respond since I'd meant no disrespect and had no idea I'd done wrong. But I left, chastened, and Ross Andrew was quickly lined up to pencil the rest of the story. Since Ross and his partner, my inker, Mike Esposito, had drawn the Captain Marvel spoof mentioned above, though I don't think I knew that till later, it was right up their alley, and things went off without a further hitch. Later, I pieced together what might have happened. Stan had written a lot of humor during his career to that date and had a fair degree of success with it, mostly for Timely Atlas, but occasionally for outside media as well. And back in the 1940s, Kurtzman had written and drawn humor material for Timely. Stan had appreciated his Hey Look, that was a comic that Kurtzman did, and found space for it in the Atlas, in Atlas Comics. But then Kurtzman had left to edit, write, and draw for EC Comics, and in short order had created Mad, which even in its four-color incarnation was something of a sales phenomenon by 1954. Stan and Timely had responded with no fewer than three parody titles, and there was some good stuff in them, but they'd all failed in short order. Perhaps I reasoned Stan felt I was unfavorably comparing him with Kurtzman, who by 1967 had risen to iconic status among comics fans and the burgeoning underground comics creators. But I had far too much respect for Stan to try and bait him that way, and he himself was well on his way, of course, to becoming another legend in his own time. In any event, to my relief, the whole thing quickly blew over and was never mentioned again till now, a frabgist footnote of comics history. For my part, I was proud of the finished story as drawn by Andrew, Everett, and maybe the figures on the splash page, and Esposito, who was credited as Mickey DeMeo. I felt Chaplain America was a perfect riff on the name of Captain America, who was given to pontifical pontifical ultra-patriotic pronouncements. And even if I'd borrowed the general notion from the ending of Nuts number 4, I loved working takeoffs on Charlie Brown, Little Orphan Annie, Dick Tracy, Archie, The Phantom, Mickey Mouse, The Little King, Little Lulu, and yes, Batman into the final panel, as seen in Alter Ego number 33. As it turned out, that glimpse of an obvious Batman-type smoking a stogie, along with passing verbal mentions of Green Lampburn and The Dash here, and of... Black Man and Robert in the following story, would be the only hint in brand-ech number one of Gary's and my original plan for the mag. And that was probably for the best. Interestingly, too, the story's splash page I, I referred to the 1940 comic being lampooned as Marble Mystery number 9, which seems to be the first and use and the only use in number one of the obvious term marble as the official brand-ech version of Marvel. Next story was Sergeant Furious and His Hostile Commandos, A Day of Blunder, written by Gary Friedrich and art and co-plotting by John Severin. Roy writes, Gary had been thrilled as Stan or I went a few months later, artist John Severin had suddenly popped up with a bit of time to spare from his workload for the black-and-white satire mag Cracked. Stan had instantly hired him to pencil and ink the monthly Sergeant Fury, which Gary now scripted. Gary had seen Severin's two Melvin of the Apes parodies in early Mad, as well as his takeoffs on Robin Hood, westerns, et al. Gary decided to basically parody A Day of Thunder, the D-Day story I had scripted with artists Ayers and John Tartaglione, for the 1966 Sergeant Fury Annual. The Brecht sale splash, though, spoofed that of Sergeant Fury number 42, May 1967 cover date the very first issue Gary himself had written. The story was quite successful to my way of thinking, right up through the happy slam sawbook, revealing on the final page that D-Day actually stands for Desertion Day, so that the commandos all split for parts unknown and their beleaguered commanding officer is free of them forever. Unfortunately, Stan had some problems with the scripting. If memory serves, Gary had titled the feature Sergeant Furry and his Yowlin Comanches, which Stan altered to Sergeant Furious and his hostile Commandos. Both Gary and I liked Gary's title better, nor could we understand why the word Commandos was left unparodied. Many of Gary's balloons and captions remained intact, but Stan rewrote numerous others, while Gary bit his tongue after one or two efforts to defend his lines were met with refutation. That's not funny. And, of course, since humor is in the mind and funny bone of the beholder, there was no answer to that blanket statement. If the man in charge didn't find something he wrote funny, all the explanations and fulminations in the world weren't going to change his mind. He just had to vow to try harder next time. Next came the cover assigned to Jack Kirby to pencil. I'm not sure who inked it or much about anything else related to it. Frankly, chances are... Stan gave Jack the basic idea, the Forbush Man character. His back turned to us scaring the living daylights out of their parody stand-ins for the FF, Dr. Doom, and Silver Surfer. Whatever it was Stan or Jack who had the idea for the look of Forbush Man, I couldn't say. But, except for lacking a cape, he looked much the way he'd appear in future issues. The name Irving Forbush, of course, had been a gag presence in Marvel Comics for some time. The equivalent of Mad's uh, Alfred E. Newman, except till now he'd had no visual incarnation. An Irving Forbush had been drawn by Joe Maneely for Timely's 1950s black and white satire mag snafu, which Stan had written and edited, but thus far in the Marvel age, that would be post 1962, Irv had only been a name in the credits, bullpen, boltons, and letters pages. Gary and I were thrilled that Stan used spurious quotes from three of us. Plus, production manager Saul Brodsky as mock testimonials. It was the first time either of us had ever seen his name on the cover of a comic book, and we greatly appreciated Stan's doing that. In retrospect, though, surely Jack Kirby's moniker should have been there, too. An oddball admission, says Roy. In looking at the covers of the title's 13 issues as I wrote this guide, I was several issues in before I realized, nor do I specifically recall observing it four-plus decades ago, That the N in the word brand is backward. I probably noticed it once in 1967, then forgot it and never thought about it again. And it is true that N is backward. Roy continues, finally with the stories and cover taken care of, Stan wrote the copy for the issue's contents page on the first interior color page from a layout probably by Marie with photostats from the four stories pasted up beneath a new drawing of Mr. Fantastical and a caricature of Spider-Man. In lieu of a text page, Stan scripted a full-page, next-issue ad at the end of the mag. By now, he'd decided number two would be the place to introduce lampoons of the heroes with the real brand, Ek, our competitors, in battle with the marble stalwarts. But he wanted only one DC character in the mix, Batman. Key of recent TV superstardom, so Gary staked his claim on Tower's Thunder Agents, and I contented myself with Gold Key's Magnus Robot Fighter. Stan ended that page with balloons of Marvel staffers and freelancers saying goodnight to each other in the matter of Chet Huntley and David Brinkley on their popular TV newscasts. By coincidence, that page foreshadowed the extended goodnights on the TV series The Waltons in the 1970s. All in all, despite the false starts and occasionally butted heads, things had turned out pretty well, we all thought, till the make-ready came in. I'm going to cut it right there, because if you want the rest of the story, and it's a, you know, fascinating, amazingly told story, uh, Roy always goes into extreme depth uh, whenever he talks about any subject in comics, and especially with Something that he was personally involved with, uh, you know. He is a great comics historian, a terrific writer, um, and the the work in Alter Ego is all like this. Uh, this comic, you know, and and reading this too, I keep thinking about just how they just don't do this anymore. You know, the uh, uh, DC would come up with the Maniacs. Uh, which was sort of had parodies of Marvel and DC characters happening within those pages uh, That was three issues of Showcase I don't remember which ones, 66, 67, and 78, I want to say, something like that um, I, I could be totally way off too uh, Beyond that, I, I can't think of a time DC really poked this kind of fun at itself uh, they do the tiny titans, uh, you know, there's stuff like this Elseworld stuff, like the uh, real Brit story, which, uh, you know, but it, it really, it, they just don't have a sense of humor about themselves. And today, Marvel really seems much the same way, you know, and, you know, there's an element where you should take your stories seriously, take your characters seriously. But you really have to take the time to take a break and look at it and be like, look what we do for a living you know, we can have fun with this, you know, and maybe if they did that, maybe they could take the bite out of some of the fans, the vociferous fans, taking it so seriously as well. Anyway, this was, again, uh, Alter Ego, number 95, July 2010 cover date. You can get it from tomorrows.com, digitally or in print, if you want to read the rest of the story. Uh, if you enjoyed this, please uh, send me a note, or if you hated it, let me know what you think at History at gmail.com. Our website, again, is chrisandreggie.com, and you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Cosmic mill I'm on Twitter at Reggie. Chris is there at Ace Comics. He's got his own site. Chris is on infiniteearth.com, where he reviews a different DC comic every day of the week, and lately it's been a different story in Action Weekly, uh, the series that went on for a year in the 90s. Uh, he's doing that for the foreseeable future until it's done. I hope, and it's going to be an amazing repository. And, of course, we do have a Patreon. If you want to become a patron, get three exclusive shows a month, plus a free enamel pin, then come on down to Patreon.com. Chris and Reggie, donate five bucks or more, and you will become part of the family. But I I hope you guys enjoyed this one. I really enjoyed reading uh, through this, and frankly, I almost went on a little uh, longer than I intended to with it, but Uh, terrific story here terrific series and uh, would love to know what you think so until next time folks I want you to keep these stories in your heart and keep your socks on your feet Let's
0: begin. The will to win that's embedded in most men unfortunately won't always be accomplished. This time you'll have to deal with the agony or try to play cool like James Cagney. In a modern day Gambino Tarantino type flick, take your pick to lose with or without honor. With or without armor, I'ma still body blow you and mind blow you with or without the drama. I'ma show you I'm the snake charmer just to take their heads. Check my tumor, hawk talk that'll leave MCs dead like Jeff Dahmer. Coming up short like Louis De Palma. Check the microphone, you're getting. And warmer, now check behind it, you'll find the heat, lamp, champ, I travel the speed of light right before I hit the ramp, then I vamp, meet you in your karma, tramp, I bring trauma to your dreamscape, fright, nightmare, I bet you remember me in the morning when you wake up scared and no one's there, I got a spare act, hoping I can share, and another glass to kick at face, you even dare, there's a whole lot of rappers out there, and I plan to bring them all to the square before I'm out of here, I'll fight you fair, I'll fight you anywhere, might you dare to battle when you are done on my plateau, all I gotta say That you don't rap dope So here's a rope Do yourself a favor Hang in there You will lose